Amen. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, worship team. And can we give it up also for our elementary ones and teachers who are in here for a little bit? Um, And as you guys are leaving, we prayed for you this morning at our 10 o'clock meeting that our kids back in the back would not just uh, be watched for this hour or, God forbid, entertained for this hour, but that the seeds of the gospel and the truth of God's word would be implanted in them in just powerful ways, that God would be with their teachers and um, really work powerfully uh, in this time as they're in their classes, that they, again, wouldn't just be watched, but that they would be raised up to be uh, men and women, uh, young people who are leaders for Christ, leaders spiritually, leaders in their careers to come, leaders in their high school and in their schools that would stand up for Jesus and would serve him. Um, that's the hope. And uh, if you would like to be a part of the team that's shepherding them, uh, partnering with parents, we'd love to have your help in that as well. So please pray for our young ones. Amen. If you're our guest this morning, uh, welcome to Centennial Church. We're so glad that you're here. I'd encourage you, uh, as Jay did earlier, there's a connection card in front of you. It's also on our CC app. We'd love to know that you're here. Uh, If you would love to talk with me or one of our elders or staff member or whatever, have questions, I'd love to meet with you for coffee, uh, pray with you, however we can serve you. Just want to make that uh, simple and easy for you. And uh, if there's another place that God would have you worship, we can help direct you to the right place for you. Uh, But so glad that you're here this morning. We are in a series called Encountering Jesus. And our hope in this series and our hope as a church is not just that we each of us would encounter Jesus, but also that we would engage with other people um, to encounter Jesus as well. And uh, that's our hope. And that's uh, what we think about our roles as followers of Jesus. The missionaries are not just the ones uh, across the pond or uh, on college campuses, but we're all ministers and missionaries. So we want to encounter Jesus, and we also want to engage other people uh, with Jesus. So this morning in our passage, we're going to see that. And uh, I've asked Tasha Krebsbach to... um, Did you get that microphone? Yes. Dang, I got you down. I want to ask, uh, I've asked Tasha to read our passage for us this morning and then pray for our time as we open God's word. And what I'd like us to also do is just stand with Tasha as we read God's word in honor and respect of God's word. We'll read it. Tasha will read it to us and then pray for our time together this morning. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, 
Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your omniscience, your omnipresence. God, we know um, that you are everywhere all at once, and we often take that for granted or, or push that into the back of our minds. We thank you that you have orchestrated a way for us to come together to study your word, to be reminded of who you are for us, what you've done for us, and why you truly are worthy of our worship and our everything. God, we ask that um, today you open our hearts, our minds to the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, who is our guide. Help us to receive your wisdom. Help us to receive your word. Give Ross the, um, the fluidity to flow with, um, with what your Holy Spirit is calling him to say and to do. And help us to receive that um, and put that into practice throughout the week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tasha. You can be seated. So encounter Jesus and then engage others with Jesus in following Jesus as well. Encounter Jesus and then engage others with Jesus. One of the things as we engage others uh, about Jesus and about the claims of Jesus, one of the things that you may have run into, you will run into as you engage some about Jesus, is this claim that's sometimes made, well, you know, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. That's one of the things you might hear, perhaps you've heard that before. Um, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Now, some of you may be sitting here and thinking, what, uh, what do you do with that? Is, is that right? Is that true? Uh, and here's where I want to help us this morning, okay? The Gospel of John shows us that over and over, Jesus is doing things, saying things, being accused of things, all leading us to conclude and all leading the followers and the people in the first century to conclude that he is not just a man, but that he is God. He is the son of God. And so John has all these different episodes to get us to the point of saying, no, Jesus is not just claiming to be a prophet or a philanthropist or a, a miracle worker, a healer. He is, he is getting us to the point of faith in Jesus as God, as God's son, so while it is true, there is no place that you can turn to in the New Testament where Jesus says these words, I am God. That's true. You should know that, okay? Don't want anyone going to college, philosophy 101, and be surprised at that. There's no place in the scriptures where Jesus uses those three words, I am God. 
But what he does is everything short of that in all sorts of different ways, getting us to that conclusion that he is God himself. And one of the ways he does that very clearly is in our passage this morning because those religious leaders, those Jewish leaders, Bible scholars of the day, hear very clearly what Jesus is claiming. So clearly that it says they are plotting to kill him. So he is not just claiming a ethical path or steps to uh, peace with God. He is claiming to be God himself, as we see in this passage. So here's, here's where we're going this morning. As we, contender, as we continue excuse me, this series on encountering Jesus, we're going to look uh, this morning at the man, the son, and the Jewish leaders. Okay, that's where we're going. The man, the son, and then the Jewish leaders. So first of all, we want to look at the man. Okay, again, the first few verses here that set up this scene. Verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem last week. We encountered Jesus, and he was at Capernaum. And this guy from Cana had come down to Capernaum and asked Jesus to heal his son. Now, in the travel log of Jesus and John, he is now going back south to Jerusalem, to the region of Judea, and there's a feast there. One of the, one of the reasons we know that Jesus ministered about three and a half, four years is because of John's timeline about feasts and the Passover. So in the Gospel of John, we're not sure which feast this is, but there's three Passover feasts, yearly feasts, that are mentioned in John's gospel, so we know that is one of the ways we indicate the timeline of Jesus' earthly ministry, okay? So he's going back uh, to Jerusalem, and it says, verse 2, that there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, okay? Uh, Time out just a second. Let me geek out for just a minute, but... uh, I traveled to Israel in 2007, saw the excavation of this pool, the pool of Bethesda. You should know that in centuries past, particularly in the 1800s with modern uh, critical scholarship, this was one of the passages that critical scholars would say, uh, you can't really trust the New Testament because we haven't found, there's no, no knowledge of this pool. Well, guess what? In the 1900s, they find this pool. And they also object, well, why would a pool have five colonnades or five porches. You've never heard of a pentagon, pentagonal, that's not a word, a pool shaped like a pentagon. Well, well, this is one of now, one of the major archaeological proofs that what the, what the New Testament is saying is legit because they found this pool and they found how the five colonnades or five porches fit, okay? You can go there today, as I did, and you can see the remains of this, and then you can go to St. Anne's Church, which John is nodding his head over there, St. Anne's Church, and you can go, you think the pool is impressive, St. Anne's Church, and that's what they did in ancient times. Anytime there was a historical site, maybe Jesus was here, what did they do? They built a church right on top of it, okay? So St. Anne's Church is right next to the pool of Bethesda. You can go in there, and I was with a group, and we went in there, and the acoustics and the beauty of this chapel just makes me look around here and think, so drab. But anyway, uh, you go in there and you sing and you acapella and it's beautiful. But anyway, go there someday, okay? Make it a bucket list to go to the Holy Lands to see the Pool of Bethesda and go and sing inside St. Anne's Church, okay? So anyway, uh, here Jesus is and he, he meets this man, 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Jesus comes across this man who is helpless. And last week I misspoke before I studied this passage adequately. Okay, so let me ask for your forgiveness. Last week I said that if you contrast the end of chapter 4 with chapter 5, you have a guy in chapter, the end of chapter 4 who's desperate. He's an official. He has power and position, and he cries out desperately for Jesus to heal his son. And I contrasted that quickly and not sufficiently enough in study with the passage this week, this week where I claimed that this invalid was kind of saying an excuse. Sir, I have no one to help me. I don't think it's actually as much of an excuse here as I've studied it this week, okay? So let that be a rule to you, okay? The word is totally trustworthy, without error. You can take it on authority, but the preacher uh, is not always without error, okay? But Jesus comes to this man, and we are going to see he's alone. Not only is he physically disabled, but he's relationally isolated because of his disability, And Jesus ministers in compassion to this man and and heals him. And the man, hear this, is helpless. Helpless. And Jesus helps the man. Now, one of the things we'll often hear also in our culture is this proverb. It's not a biblical proverb, but this proverb that says, God helps those who help themselves, right? Wrong. (laughs) Yes, we hear it all the time, but how wrong it is. That is actually the antithesis of the gospel. That is the antithesis of Jesus, and that's what we see here. Here, Jesus helps a man who cannot help himself. We find out he's been in this condition for 38 years. So we don't know if he's 38 years old. We don't know if he's 40 years old. We don't know if he's 60 years old. Commentators say that the life expectancy in the first century was probably about this guy's age. So chances are he's been in this condition all of his life, though we're not for sure. But what we know is that he's helpless. God helps those who are helpless, who cannot help themselves. So last week we did see a desperate man, an official, but this week we also meet another desperate man, a powerless, isolated man. The man at the end of chapter 4 had position, he had power, he had a place of service, For the king, this guy is an invalid, he is powerless, he has no position, he has no resources by which to make himself better. And he has been at this place, he has been in this condition for 38 years, and his only help will be Jesus. God helps those who are helpless. And sometimes those who feel self-sufficient don't get the help or the grace of Jesus because of their sense of self-sufficiency. So the guy in chapter four said Jesus, or he doesn't say Jesus, he actually says, sir, sir, come down. And here the invalid, the man who is paralyzed says, sir, I have no one. And it's a true statement. He's helpless. He's physically broken. He's relationally isolated because of his condition, largely. Looked upon as an outcast. He is physically broken. He is relationally isolated. And we'll also see that he is spiritually dead. Physically, relationally, spiritually bankrupt. Helpless. 
And what's clear in the passage, even as Jesus heals him, is that the man is unaware of Jesus' true identity. So he said that he calls him, he says, he calls him sir. It's a title of respect, it's not a title of deity. This man apparently knows little or nothing about Jesus and his claims previously. He refers to him as sir, and as you, if you look on in the passage in verse 11 and well as verse 13, he refers to Jesus as the man. The religious leaders come up to him and say, who did this? And he says, the man. He, he, he doesn't even bother to ask Jesus' name or know Jesus' true identity. So this helpless man gets healed by grace, by Jesus, and doesn't even understand Jesus' true identity. Now, Jesus asked this man this fascinating question. Verse 6, do you want to be healed? It's kind of an odd question. Jesus often asks odd questions, penetrating, deep, difficult questions. Do you want to be healed? In this case, which is not usually the case, but in this case, I actually prefer the old King James Version where it's translated, Jesus asking the man, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be put back right? Of course. I've been this way 38 years. But it's actually a legit question um, for Jesus to ask as the Son of God who knows the minds of all people, knows our condition and knows our motives. And actually, if you talk to marriage counselors or those in the field of mental health, health, mental illness, a legit question is, do you want to get well? Why? Because sometimes we don't actually want to get well. We get kind of comfortable with our brokenness. We get kind of comfortable with our sickness. And again, if you don't believe that, look deeply within yourself. Ask someone who is in a helping profession. Do you really want to be whole? Do you, you want to get well? And what's fascinating to me is that Jesus comes up to this man and the man sees his need, but he does not see the solution. He does not see the proper solution. Because what is the man looking to for his health, for his healing? He's looking in this pool, in this water, which, according to verse 4, time out, another issue here. Most of you, most of us, don't have verse 4 in our scriptures. Okay, time out here. This is another thing you need to know. When there's a question in the New Testament about whether a verse actually appeared in the first manuscripts, the Bible's honest, the, the people that put together the Bibles that we have are honest, and they say that this, verse 4, is probably likely a later in addition. Okay, it says that in your footnotes down below. I don't have time to go into that. But where there are issues of what was truly original in the Bible, the editors are honest about that. But there was this tradition, apparently, and this explains his reply in verse 7, that in this pool, there were some powers and that people believed an angel would stir the waters and if those who were lame could get into the water, they might be healed of their paralysis or infirmity or, or whatever it is. And so this man, maybe for 38 years, is counting upon these magical waters to make him whole, to make his disease go away, to heal him. But what he doesn't see 
is that Jesus, the source of his healing, is right there and can heal him. He doesn't need the magical waters. And so think about this. Water is this theme in John's gospel. We've already seen it in the first four chapters. Where in chapter 3, Jesus says, you've got to be born of, born of water and of spirit. He, he refers to water. What did we see in chapter 4? One of Jesus' claims that he goes to the Samaritan woman and he says, I'm living water. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. And if you knew what I had, you, you would ask me for this living water. And here is this man in chapter 5 next to water, and he doesn't get that the living water is touching him, is right next to him. But he is still entranced with this magical water that he hopes Jesus will not save him, but Jesus will push him into the magical water. He doesn't know Jesus' true identity. Jesus just... Give me a boost. Give me a push, and this thing can heal me. And the Savior, the healer, the creator and the recreator, Jesus, is right next to him that, can, that has all the power in himself to heal the man, to save the man. But the man, like us, often, is looking to magical waters, cultural saviors, someday solutions, someday when I'm able to get in this water, I'll be healed. And Jesus, if you would just be my personal assistant, Jesus, if you would just give me a little boost here, I don't really need you as my savior, I just need you to give me a boost, to give me a shove. And do you see the parallel for you and me? Jesus, I don't really, perhaps, Jesus, I don't really need you to be my savior, I don't really need you to die on the cross for me, I just need you to give me a little boost, to help me get into this water that I think will heal me, that I think will satisfy me. And what we do is we want a little Jesus vitamin, a little boost from Jesus, but we're still relying on these magical waters to bring us the significance, the security, the guiltlessness that we want. Someday, if I achieve this status, if I get married again, if I achieve this job promotion, or have this much income, Jesus, if you would just help me on this journey to career success, if you would just help me on this personal journey to my own fulfillment, then I'll be whole. I'll be well. So what are these magical waters? What are these cultural saviors? What are these someday solutions that we look to that tell us or that we tell ourselves, I'll be whole if I just had this, if I could just get in here. I will be whole and I will be welcomed into the community and secure if I get this. So for this man, it was simple. I just got to beat these other people. (laughs) I just got to get a boost and I got to beat these other people and then I'll be the first into the water and then I'll be healed. So it's salvation by competition. I just got to be better. I just got to be faster. I got to be better than the guy next to me. And then I'll get in and then I'll be whole. It's salvation by competition. We also 
face salvation by competency. As I said, if I just get to this place in my career, if I just have this much business success, if I just get to a level of comfort, if I'm just able to move further north and have the comfort and the ease that I want, if I can get my kids to do what I want and turn out right, and then I'll have that fulfillment. Because what actually is salvation? Well, we know it's, it's freedom from the penalty of sin and life with Jesus and eternal life to come. But when, if you think about it, salvation frees me of guilt, shame, and inadequacy, right? Salvation frees me of guilt, shame, and inadequacy. So what do we try to do? We try to find false saviors. We try to find magical waters that will what? That will give us shamelessness. That will take away our inadequacy of which we will no longer feel guilty if we have this, if we accomplish this. Salvation frees us of guilt, shame, and inadequacy. Salvation puts us in right relationship. And if this guy could just get in the water, if he could be healed, then he would have right relationships. And we do the same thing. I do the same thing. If I could just accomplish this, then I'll be connected. Then I'll have the right relationships. Then I'll be without this feeling of inadequacy, this, without this feeling of guilt. Salvation frees us of guilt, shame, and inadequacy. It puts us in a right relationship. It brings security and it promises a better future. Someday, if Jesus, you'll just give me a boost and, and get me this degree, get me this place of promotion or prominence, then I'll be whole. Then I'll be satisfied. Which leads to which leads us to the claims of Jesus, the living water. Who is this Jesus that comes to a helpless man? And I think we're supposed to interpret this entire passage and Jesus' actions here. I think we're supposed to in- interpret the entire story with verse 18, with the conclusion in mind, verse 18. Look again with me at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's the way they interpreted his actions, that he was claiming to be equal with God. So who is this Jesus that comes to the helpless man? He's one who claims equality with God. He's one who is working with the Father. He's not just a personal assistant. He's not a consultant. He's not one to just give us a little boost on our own personal journey of finding wholeness. He's the living water himself, the one that we're to repent from our magical waters and go to him for life and for salvation. That's the Jesus that we meet here, that we are to meet here. And notice that Jesus initiates with the man. Jesus comes to the man first. This man is so helpless, he could, not, he could never get to Jesus. Much like you and me. We will never get to Jesus unless Jesus comes first to us. This is supposed to be a picture of that. We're totally helpless on our own. We have no power. We have no ability. So Jesus initiates. Jesus t- comes, to the first, comes first to the man. He reaches out to the man before the man knows who he is. And this is the theme, this is the teaching of Scripture, not just of Paul or big words used later in the epistles, but this is the teaching that we see illustrated here, even from Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 41 and 44, 41 through 44. 
Jesus says this later on in his Gospels. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Another audacious claim, verse 42, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. What's Jesus claiming? You are just as helpless, I am just as helpless as this man here, unless the Father does something, unless God moves first, unless God initiates first. Likewise, John chapter 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. 1 John 4.10, Jesus says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He acts first. He takes the initiative. Jesus is the one who came to save us. When we could not save ourselves, he took the first step. The only reason that any of us in this room will ever turn to Jesus or have turned to Jesus is because God came to us first. Not only does he take the initiative, we see obviously here, like we saw last week, that this Jesus is a Jesus of compassion. He cares about this helpless man. He cares about you. He cares about me. He is the God of the universe. He is the creator of all things, and he is compassionate toward those he loves and cares for. Not only is he compassionate, he's the Lord of the Sabbath, which really ticks these Jewish leaders off. We'll talk about them in a second. But he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the true and living water. He is the point that all the signs pointed to. He is life. If you come to me, the living water, I will not point you to life. I will be your life. I will be your, your salvation. And so we find this language, even the Old Testament in Psalms, where David prays in Psalm 27, the Lord is my salvation. He is my salvation. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't just point me to salvation. He is, the Lord is my salvation. He came to me. His son hung on the cross for me. He is my salvation. That's what he is claiming here. As verse 18 is clear, he is pointing to himself working with the Father, being God's Son, being our salvation. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus will say, before Abraham was, I am. And what, are the, what does the crowd do in response to that claim in chapter 8 of John? They pick up stones to throw at him. Because they get the point. He is claiming to be God. Not just a hero, not just a healer. Not just a miracle worker, not just a prophet, not just a philanthropist, not just a do-gooder. He is claiming to be life and God himself. The son in whom all must believe. The purpose of John's gospel, we looked at it last week, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says this, Jesus did all sorts of other signs, but these signs were written that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Why did he do these signs? That you might see that Jesus is the son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Augustine, fourth century, fifth century, fourth century, third, fourth century. Augustine said this, 
it will be not held against you that you cannot bring together your wounded limbs, but that you reject him who wants to heal you. It will not be held against you that you cannot bring together your wounded limbs, but that you reject him who wants to heal you. Guess what? For those who place their faith in Jesus, you will be healed. May not be today, but you will be healed. Jesus doesn't heal everyone. There were a whole lot of paralyzed people around here, and Jesus chose one guy to extend his grace to. But his promise is for all who believe in him, we will one day be healed. I believe in healing. I believe he heals today, and I believe that he heals all in the end. But he's not just a healer. He's God himself. Finally, let's look at the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders as quickly as we can here, but there's a lot here that we need to take note of. The Jewish leaders are ticked off, as we can see here. They are miffed. They are angry. They believe Jesus is being blasphemous. And they have so committed themselves to keeping the Sabbath, they can't imagine that Jesus would do good on the Sabbath. They've so twisted God's law and they've so extrapolated God's law and added to God's law. Because God's law says don't work on the Sabbath. And they added all these rabbinical traditions, all these extra rules to God's law to say, here's how you avoid working on the Sabbath, and they missed the heart of it. They are adding, extrapolating rules and safety precautions and tenaciously holding on to the sign. And guess what? They miss the reality that the sign points to. The Sabbath was to point to Jesus, our rest, who was coming. And they held on to the sign and didn't see the reality that the sign pointed to. So they missed completely Jesus by their man-made rules and the blindness, that is, of keeping the law and adding on to the law. We are in danger when we take away from God's law as well as when we add to God's law. And it's been that way from the beginning. Quickly, flip with me, Genesis chapter three. This is where this starts in the garden because the first thing that the enemy does, the first thing that Satan does, verse one of chapter three, the serpent, Satan, serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? What's he doing? Don't really take God at his word. Did he really say that? Deleting from God's law. That's the way we typically think about it. But the problem of the Pharisees and the temptation for us, it's not just a delete from God's law. Look at the temptation of verse three. These are Eve's words right here where she misses it. Eve says, you shall, he told us, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither yet shall you touch it lest you die. Now, did God say, don't touch the tree? He did not. And yet in her natural wisdom, she said, well, he said don't eat it, so surely it's even better if we just don't touch it at all. What does she do? She added to God's law. That is what the Pharisees have done here through their entire lives, adding to God's law. Be careful. 
We want to be people of the book. We don't want to take away from God's word, but we also don't want to add extraneous things to God's word with man-made human traditions. We can run from God by breaking all the rules, and we can run from God by keeping all the rules. You realize that? These folks miss Jesus. Why? Because they were keeping all the rules. Their confidence was in their obedience. Their confidence was in rule-keeping. And you can run, you can say to heck with Jesus, to heck with God, and I'm going to go and I'm going to live a life of sin and personal pleasure and self-satisfaction, and you completely reject God and you run from God by breaking the rules. But you know what some of us can do? We can try our best to be really good people and keep the rules, and and what does that do? That's running from God by a self-righteousness, a self-sufficiency, because you know what? It's easier to keep rules than to relate to a living God. And I know I even heard this week that so many of us have grown up in religious contexts where it was rules, rules, rules. Can't do this, can't do this, must do this all the time. Rules, rules, rules. And rules can sometimes make us self-righteous and self-sufficient so we actually avoid a relationship with God because we're so doggone good. John chapter 5, he's going to go on. He's going to give these Pharisees, as he continues to talk to them, this incredible warning. Hear this, Centennial Church. Chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Hear me carefully. We're a people of the book. A people of the book. You cannot know Jesus apart from the scriptures. But guess what? You can know this book backwards and forwards and not know Jesus. We're all about centering lives on Jesus Christ. One of the ways we do that is through biblical teaching. But the Bible and scripture was given to us not as an end itself, but as a means to the end of knowing Jesus. And Jesus told these guys and he tells us, you come to the scriptures because you think that in them is life, yet you refuse to come to me. You see the signs but you haven't come to the reality to which they point. And so at the end of this story of incredible, miraculous healing, who's sick? Not the man. The religious people are unaware sick and dying though they've been totally committed to rules 
be careful lest we substitute knowledge of the scriptures for faith in Jesus himself. So let me finish with three giant, gargantuan truths, reminders. Okay? Number one, we are like this man. Believe it or not, we are like this man, helpless, totally dependent, estranged from Jesus. We are like this man, unable to help ourselves. And also relying upon cultural saviors, upon false waters, rather than coming to Jesus, the living water. What are you trusting in this morning? Is it Jesus himself? Or is it some other attainment, some other comfort, some other position to bring you salvation, to make you secure, to take away your guilt, to live up to some type of standard? Number two, Jesus is not a personal assistant to help us accomplish our own agenda. He's not here to give us a boost. He's not here to be our consultant, to run our errands for us. He wants us to do an about face to return and repent and come to him and him alone. And finally, number three, the greatest commandment is not to keep the Sabbath. The greatest commandment is to love God and love others. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what life is about. Encountering Jesus, seeing what he has done for you, seeing how he has saved you, healed you, brought you wholeness, died on the cross for you, encountering him and loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thus having compassion for every other invalid, desperate, helpless person, person in the world. Why? Because every single person in the Gospel of John needs grace. Every other person that you live with, work with, live next door to, is a person helpless, desperate, and in need of the undeserved grace of Jesus. As we said from the beginning of this series, it's a relationship with Jesus, not a moral code, not a philosophy. God, help us love you. Pray with me. Father God, we come to you this morning. And we confess together that we are weaker and more helpless than we often think. Father God, I confess and I think along with my brothers and sisters here that we look elsewhere for water. We look elsewhere for salvation. Father, forgive us. Turn our hearts back to Jesus 
that we would be centered upon Jesus, not upon rules, not upon magic formulas or cultural saviors, but that we would come to the living water and drink deeply of Jesus. We ask it in his beautiful name. Amen.